continue on in the book of Ephesians. We are still in chapter 1. We'll be finishing it up uh, tonight, and we're going to be walking through verses 15 through 23. Now, if you're new to the series, we are talking about how we find our identity in Christ, not in uh, who we think we are or what people say about us, but who God says we are. And so we want to dig into his word to find out um, who we were created to be and who he who he tells us we are, because those... Um, those who are created, they, they know that those um, that, that whoever creates us gets to define us. And so we're going to trust God uh, since he created us, that he gets to tell us who we are. And tonight, the theme is that I'm appreciated. I am appreciated. That's who we are in Christ. If your faith is in Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, you're appreciated. Now, that's kind of odd to think of when you think of God appreciating us. But let me um, just ask you, knowing most of us want to be appreciated, do you feel very appreciated in your life right now? How about, how about at home? Do your kids appreciate you? Uh, does your spouse, does your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your parents, do you find appreciation at home? What about at work? Does your boss appreciate you? Do your other coworkers, do they appreciate you? If you got customers, do they appreciate you? We live in a time where um, manners are few and far between, and our sense of entitlement is through the roof. And so if you are in the hospitality business or the food service business, let me just apologize for all of humanity. One just... Because there's there's just not a lot of appreciation. We're we're rude to people. We're crude to people. We um, we're, we're just kind of a jerk culture right now in America. And if you hold a door for someone, if you say thank you to someone, uh, it means more now than maybe ever before because we just don't hear it as often. We don't see it as often. Um, maybe you've got people in your life um, who you've looked at and thought because they're ungrateful. Who do you think you are? You ever have that moment where you just look at someone and you say, who, who do you think you are? Like you just, you take, 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 and you just don't show appreciation at all. I, um, in the church world, particularly when it comes to weddings, I love doing weddings. I like to walk through that season of life with people and I want to bless them. But it's this weird balance because you don't really know if it's part of the job description or not. Like if you've got a pulse in the state of Kansas, you can perform a wedding. There's not much in the way of standards for performing a wedding ceremony, but people still like to have um, uh, their weddings in churches and pastors doing the ceremony and all that stuff. And certainly if we know them and, and they're believers, um, it, obviously they, they must be believers, but it's a special thing. Well, there was a wedding season that lasted about 10 months uh, a few years ago, and it was wedding after wedding after wedding. And in my house, we don't build in the wedding time, meaning the premarital counseling. It takes hours. It's usually done at night. Weddings are usually on a Saturday. My day off is Friday or Saturday, hopefully both. And so you're going to do rehearsal Friday night. You're going to do wedding Saturday. So weddings impact our house more than um, any other thing that I do because they're they're just kind of random and they take up a lot of home time and a lot of times um, you know you're not going to get paid anymore or anything there's not sometimes even much of a thank you but you do them and I remember one time in the midst of this I was worn out I was tired I was just ready to be done with weddings and I had this one couple that 
Um, they were a nice young couple, but they had they had a lot going on in life. And as we did premarital counseling, I could tell they didn't really want to do it, and and they didn't like it. But it was still taking hours of time for us to do this. And and I was pouring into them, and I was pouring into them, and other people were pouring into them, and they they just weren't very grateful. Um, but we wanted to pour into them. And then the day of the wedding came, and the ceremony um, was getting set up, and they didn't have anyone to do ceremony or do like decorations and stuff. So people really banded together, and we went out of our way to help them as much as we could. Again, the young couple just trying to get uh, their feet off the ground a little bit. And, and the wedding day was stressful. Um, they were ungrateful. They weren't thankful. They didn't say thank you one time um, to me or probably to many of the people who were helping. And I just looked at them several times and thought, man, what, who do you think you are? Like, I was just tired of wedding season and this was just pushing me over the edge. And afterwards, um, they just stopped going to church, and I would contact them. How are you guys doing? How's life? And um, they just wanted to be married, and they they didn't have any feelings about. And I just was like, man, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of effort. And I just felt like saying to them, "Who do you think you are? What do you do when you're in the season of life where you just feel?" underappreciated, and you find yourself growing maybe a little angry with people, a little bitter, a little resentful, and you know, man, people are broken. We're all broken. We show a lack of gratefulness for people, but doesn't it feel good just to be appreciated sometimes? And if you're in a season where you're not appreciated by the people around you, what do you do? What do you do? Well, there's good news. There's good news, and that is that God appreciates you. Now, we'll explain what that means tonight, Um, but that's a game changer because the desire to be appreciated when it's met by God, it it lets you not have to use other people in your life to get something only God can truly affirm or give to you, and that changes everything. So we're going to walk through verses 15 through 23, and we're going to see what it looks like uh, to be appreciated in God. So let's walk through all eight verses, and then we'll Go one by one. Verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the measurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All right, let's walk through this first verse and a half. Verse 15 and 16a says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. First thing we see is that God appreciates you. God appreciates you. There's two things that Paul is thankful for. Of course, he starts by saying, for this reason. So he's going back to verses 3 through 14, which in the Greek was just one verse. Um, Now, 
in the Greek verses 15 through 23 are actually just one verse, one sentence um, as well. So it's one big long thought with all kinds of awesome theology. And he says, you've got every spiritual blessing. Remember, you're adopted. You have all these riches in Christ. You have all this amazingness in Christ. We could have spent weeks and weeks and weeks walking through that. And that was all great stuff. And he says, because of that, I've heard of your faith. So two things that he's thankful for, for the Ephesians. He says, your faith in Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So I'm thankful because you've got vertically some good stuff going on, your love for God and horizontally your love for people. That's what Christianity boils down to, right? When it comes to the way that we live is we love God, we love people. He says, I'm thankful for those things. Is that you? If so, God appreciates you. Do you love God? Do you love his church? Not the name of a church, but people who love God. Do you love Christians? If that's you, he's saying, good job. This is good. If it's not you, he's saying, repent. (laughs) Love God, love people. And then he says, I I don't cease. I don't stop giving thanks for you. This is, this is very important. We believe as Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, in something called um, verbal plenary inspiration. That's a big fancy way of, of saying that we believe God's word is God's word, that all of the Bible is God's word, and that even though God uses humans to write the word and to speak, it's technically God himself speaking through them. And so uh, it might be Paul's voice, but it's God's word. It might be written to the church in Ephesus, but it's written to all of us. And so that is a game changer because we recognize in the immediate context, he's giving thanks. The apostle Paul is giving thanks to the church in Ephesus, right? But in the 30,000 foot view of it, we recognize that God is saying to those who are obedient in him, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for you. Now, this is a very, very, very important thing that I'm about to say. Um, because for some of us, when we hear it, that God appreciates us, it makes us a little uncomfortable. Like, God didn't need us. That's right. You see, there's two primary ways of being appreciative towards someone. And one is that there was a need that you had and um, someone met it. And so you showed appreciation because they met a need. That's not what God feels towards us, even though Paul, in the immediate context, is saying, you guys are, are doing something great. The second way is that you're doing something good, you're doing something well, and they're just glad. They're just glad. So you're doing a good work, like the Ephesians. You love God, you love people, and Paul's just glad. He's thankful, he's appreciative that you're not heathens, <laughs> that, that you, you love God, right? This is how God feels um, about his children who are obedient. God doesn't need us, right? God is self-sufficient. God doesn't have a hole in his heart, and we fill that hole. God can do whatever God wants to do. He's God, but he created humans to love him and to love each other, and he's just glad when you do that. It's kind of like if you're a parent, um, you, you see your kiddos um, doing things in the house that um, you don't want them to do, and you're not happy when they don't do those, right? You're ticked. But then you see them do things like clean their room. Now, as a parent, you don't need them to clean their room, but you're glad that they clean their room. You're glad when things are in order, when it's the way that it was supposed to be. And that's how God feels about us. When we love him and when we love people, he looks down and he says, you make me happy. 
I'm glad. I appreciate. I'm thankful. Even though I don't need that done, I'm just glad to see that you're doing what you were created to do. In other words, God, God loves you. That's good. That's good news. Now, some of us, we, we don't think about this because um, there's another doctrine in the church um, of God's omniscience that sometimes isn't taught very well. Omniscience is the idea that um, God is all-knowing, right? Omnipotence is that God's all-powerful. Um, omnipresence is when we know God is everywhere, right? Um, but omniscience is the idea that God knows everything. And the way that it's usually taught, right, and maybe even from me, is in the idea that he sees your sin. He sees all the bad things you do. There's a judgment day. We're going to be judged. You better be in Jesus. All that kind of talk is usually how we talk about omniscience. God knows everything you do, right? It's like when you're a kid and they say, well, Santa Claus knows. He knows the good. He knows the bad. And you just think mostly about like, oh, no, the bad, right? That's what he's seen. And we think that way sometimes with God, don't we? We think, hey, he knows everything, the bad. But it works both ways. He also sees even when no one else appreciates you, when no one else receives your love or your mercy or your grace, or they don't respond the way you hope, he sees when you have a heart that's pure. He sees when you do something noble. He sees when, when you were trying to make the best decision in him and you sought him for wisdom. And, and, and he sees all of those baby steps that maybe the world doesn't see. He sees and he likes it. And for every time that you remind yourself that he sees all the bad you do, you have to also remind yourself he sees, he sees when he's drawn me to repentance and I respond by being repentant. We don't teach that much, but it's just as true as it is the other way. God's a father and we're children. And he sees everything, good and bad. Now, there's a trap that I hope, I hope that you can avoid um, Many of you have fallen into it. I fell into it. And that's, that's when, especially early in ministry, I fell into this trap. When, when God prompts me or you or us to do something and we are going to serve the church, we're going to do um, what, he, we're going to love someone, do something good for someone, and they don't appreciate us. And, and we know God told us to do this, but we don't experience appreciation. And so we stop doing it because we're angry. They don't appreciate it. If you live your life waiting for human affirmation that your spouse is going to be appreciative of you going above and beyond, if your children are going to be appreciative of you going above and beyond, if your coworkers, if your customers, if you name it, are going to be appreciative, then you're going to stop yourself from obeying God a lot. Because even God knew when he sent Jesus to die on the cross that not everyone would receive him. And he knew that the ones who were killing him were the ones that he was dying for. And so if it was based on, if obedience was based on how are people going to receive it, the gospel wouldn't be the gospel. But your obedience is that you have your identity in Christ and you know God loves you and, and he um, sees what's happening in your heart, both bad and good, and, and that people aren't always going to receive things well, but God knows your heart and you're going to be obedient because it's not about how they receive it. It's about what he told you to do.
Your service can't be built on human response. Let me ask you before we um before we move on, is there um and we did this a little bit last week, so for those of you who weren't here last week, we kind of opened it up to make sure uh, if there's something we're not hitting in these verses that you have an opportunity to ask questions and um, you can be silent and we can go on to the next verse or you can chat a little bit and we can engage in this. Is there, um, this is a yes or no one. Is there someone in your life that you've stopped serving? You stopped loving? Or that you just ticked off at because they don't appreciate you the way that you hope? Yay or nay? Do you guys communicate with other humans during the week? <laughs> I gave you an easy one. That was just a yes or no one. Let me, let me, let me. I don't know the difference between like continuing to serve someone and being washed all over. Because isn't there like a point where it's like, okay, you know that this person is taking advantage of the situation. It's not that they're just unappreciative, but they're, yep. they're using it. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the line isn't, are they um, appreciative or not? Are they using you or not? Um, Because some people might use you and you don't even know it. The line is, when does God tell you to stop and when does God tell you to go? And sometimes he might tell you to go and keep going even when people are taking advantage of you. And other times he might tell you to stop long before um, it feels like it's right to stop. You have to be in tune with his spirit on that for sure, for sure. How does, how does knowing that God is thankful for your obedience, even though he doesn't need it, but he's glad of your obedience, how does that change the way um, you serve people? Would it change anything for you? Or do you feel like, nah, I know how God feels about me. And so regardless of how people respond, I'm going to serve them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love them. that change anything for you? Man, I would love to have you all in my grow group. It would be amazing conversation. I'm teasing you. That's okay. We'll have some more questions. Some of them you'll like, some of them you won't, and so it's all good. Verse 16b, this is the second half of verse 16. He says, I do not cease, so I don't stop to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So I'm going to say a few things here um, for the rest of the sermon about appreciated people, because here's how appreciated people respond. Paul knew his identity in Christ, and he's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, and we're going to see some key things. There's all kinds of great, important theology in these verses, but I don't want us to lose this fact that that Paul is choosing to be thankful, choosing to appreciate the saints in Ephesus, and It changes the way that he lives and the way that he writes this letter. And so the first thing that appreciated people do is they exchange grumbling for praying. They exchange grumbling for praying. How many of you, um, you tend to grumble when you're underappreciated? Some of us, yeah. It happens, right? You see, grumbling is when you want to talk to yourself or talk to other people about other people. Praying is when you talk to God about other people. And grumbling happens when you're ticked off or you're resentful or you're bitter, but you don't really want a solution. You just want to vent. 
Praying happens when you love people and you love God and you want a solution. You want transformation and change, even if that transformation and change needs to happen in your own heart. But we pray. We pray. For those of you who um, are new or newer to Christianity, um, the Bible is God's word to us. It's how God speaks to us. It's not the only way God speaks to us, but prayer is how we speak to God. And prayer isn't just you talking to God. There's lots of different ways in which you can do that. Sometimes we pray when we sing. On Sunday mornings when we're singing to God, we, we say that's worship. It's not just um it's not just us singing as a congregation just for fun because it sounds like that's what you should do in church. But you are, you are praying when you're singing. You're talking to God. That's not just um, talking with other people and, and then singing and thinking it hits the ceiling and bounces back to you. No, you're talking to God. You talk to God and you pray when, when you talk out loud to him. The first year or two that I was a Christian, I remember um, I didn't know how Christians were supposed to pray and I was just by myself and I was in my house and I, most of my prayers were out loud because I just assumed like, okay, I talk out loud. That's how it happens. I didn't even know that Christians really prayed silently. Some of us, we, we pray silently. Sometimes we pray not just in our own mind, but in our heart. There's murmurs there's prayers that we don't even know we're praying, right? And the Spirit is praying in us. It's a groaning from the inside, Paul says in Romans. And so prayer happens when we talk to God and we listen to God. And so people who exchange their grumbling for praying knows that praying is an ultimately a release for us, a chance for us to be changed by God. But it's much more productive. Now, think about Paul. Some of us, we think, well, I got... I got plenty that I could grumble about, right? Think about Paul. This dude has tons he could be grumbling about. How about being mistreated? That's something to grumble about. I mean, Paul's sitting in the prison, right? House arrest for a couple years. We see at the end of Acts. And he's writing these letters to the Philippians. Remember, you read the book of Philippians? It talks about joy, 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 peace, 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 all over the place. More than any of his other books, but he wrote that from prison. Colossians, it's like a mini Romans. It's packed full of all kinds of good stuff. Wrote it from prison. Philemon, he's talking about a slave who is going back to his slave owner, and he's saying, be good to him. Well, he's sitting in prison himself. He was mistreated. He was beaten. He was later, after he wrote this, shipwrecked. He, he was bitten by a snake. He was stoned before he wrote this. Not high as in drug stone, like beaten with rocks stoned. He was left for dead. His reputation was horrible in some areas. He was mistreated. He had a lot to grumble about. How about, how about the fact that he was single? Right? Paul talks a little bit about being single in Romans. Now, all the single people, could you grumble about being single? You all love being single. Sometimes you grumble because it's lonely. Paul must have felt some loneliness, right? He didn't have any kids. Those of you who are maybe married and you, you want kids, but maybe you couldn't yet fertility issues, you can grumble about that. Paul didn't grumble about that. How about being poor? Paul was a tent maker on the side. Who knows what he was doing at this point in time, but he didn't have tons and tons of money if he's making tents. And talking to half the churches that he talked to in his letters about whether they would fund him or not. You can grumble about being poor. Paul, he, he, 
he didn't grumble. He was praying for them. How about the fact that he was in prison? Why? Not because he was a jerk, because he was doing what I'm trying to do tonight. If I left here in handcuffs, I feel like I, I would be tempted to grumble. But he, he's in prison for being super obedient to Jesus. How many of us, if we were said, you know what, I'm just going to make it my goal to be really devoted to Jesus, and I'm going to do exactly what he says, and, and that got you thrown in prison, if you wouldn't have a little grumble against God for that. But he said, no, I don't stop praying for you. I don't stop praying for you. You know, Paul spent more time in Ephesus than he did any other place in his church planning missionary journeys, right? So he knows the flaws of the Ephesians. How many of us, if we're writing a letter to someone and we're thinking about some of the bad times we had, would be tempted to start by being like, I know we ended weirdly. Read Acts 20. They were bawling like babies that got a little bit weird, right? I know that we didn't always get along. I know that some of you got issues. I've heard about some of the things you've done and some of the bad things that are happening. We could, but he says, I thank God for you and I don't stop praying for you. I don't stop praying for you. See, that's what happens when you know that you're appreciated by God. You don't feel like you need to constantly grumble against other people because you don't lack appreciation in him. So you don't need, need, need appreciation in them. Grumbling. Ultimately, grumbling is, is the absence of, in a lot of cases, of appreciation. But I could tell you, I could just say, church, stop grumbling. And, and you would say, stop yelling. We've both got issues. And it doesn't work very well to just say, stop grumbling. You've you got to have, have something else. And the key to stop grumbling is recognizing that, that I can focus daily on what I have in Christ. The fact that he suffered for me, that he was a suffering servant, that he came not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, that he died for me, that he rose again. And all of this blesses me like crazy. And you're not so concerned about what you don't have, but you're a overwhelmed by what you do have in him. You see, when, um, when that desire in your heart to be appreciated is met by God, then you can love people just for people and not how they respond to you. You can um, serve people regardless of how they receive it. How's your prayer life? If you um if you had to describe the ratio between how much you complain compared to how much you pray, what would that ratio look like? Some of us we've got people in our lives that um we have complained for way more than we have ever prayed for. And every time you complain, you grumble. Every time you grumble or complain, you are lighting a fire in your soul that will consume you. 
every time you pray for someone, you want to learn to love someone, pray for them. Because when you talk about someone in the presence of a holy God, he will remind you that you don't even deserve to be in his presence. And then you'll start to see them and say, their sin is no different than my sin. We're both broken and you will be overwhelmed by God's grace and his mercy and the fact that you get to even talk to him. And it's going to change the way that you see that person. But if you complain and you just think about how jacked up they are, it's going to make you more jacked up. Because everything we do feeds something in our lives. And you can feed your sin nature or you can feed the Holy Spirit inside of you. Verses 17 through 20. Paul goes on to say, so this is his prayer. A good chunk of Ephesians is a prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Number two, appreciated people, they exchange competing for celebrating. Now, let me, let me, let me talk about competing for a second because it doesn't specifically address it here. But when you and I are underappreciated, we tend to um, just try to work harder than the people who are appreciated in order to get the appreciation that they deserve, but we want, right? This, um, this motivates a lot of people, doesn't it? When you're in school and you see even in like the second grade, someone gets a couple stars on their little uh, line on whatever mad minute quiz thing you're doing and you want that, then, then you work harder. And as you get older and you see people get um, on the honor roll, uh, you say, you know what? I want that praise. And so you work harder and you want to beat them out. And in sports, we know win at all costs, right? And so you're taught from an early age that you just got to win, win, win. Why? Because we want to win championships. Why? Because we want to be praised. We want to be appreciated. We want people to look at us and say, you're somebody. You're awesome. And so it motivates us. It keeps us going. How about in our careers when you find someone else gets that raise, someone else gets promoted, and you think, I want that. So what do you do? You, you work harder. And for some of us, that desire for appreciation in all those areas of life, it motivates us, it motivates us, it motivates us, and it creates unhealthy competition. And in the Bible, it says, spur one another on to love and to good deeds. But this isn't it. <laughs> That's not what it means. Because most of us live our lives as if there's one prize, and if there's more than one person, then you've got to beat someone out to get some praise. But in the kingdom of God, everybody wins because there's plenty to go around. And Jesus welcomes everyone. And so you don't have to compete. You can celebrate. Now, let me ask you some heart questions. I'm just going to rifle four of them off for you when it comes to competing. Because we're going to celebrate these verses here in a second. But let me just ask you when it comes to competing. Um, are you critical of others' success? 
Ask yourself this, and am I critical of others' success? When you hear of someone in your life, whether it be via social media or at work or whatever, that is succeeding, do you automatically think, yeah, but, yeah, but, they, they, must, have, they must have done something dirty to get to where they are. They, they must have cheated. They, hey, yeah, they might have done good here, but have you heard about this other part of their life? I've heard they're not so great behind the scenes. I've got neighbors that know them, and, and are you critical of other people's success because you don't want them to be successful? How about number two? Do you celebrate when people fail? Do you secretly celebrate when people publicly fail? And so something deep inside um, you want them to not look very good because if they look bad, it's easier for you to look good. And so by taking them off of the pedestal, it feels like you can project yourself up onto that pedestal a little bit easier. Is that you? How about number three? Do you feel the need to tell every good deed that you do? How about on social media? What do you post about? Is it just when you do something awesome? When you cook a meal that's better than what you perceive most other people are cooking at their house? When you take a picture that's probably better than what other people would be taking? When you're on vacation and you're in a better place than other people probably are back home? Do you just want to project the the successes in your life and tell everyone of the good stuff that you're doing? Number four, this is fun. I can tell you guys enjoy it. Do you exaggerate or lie in hopes that you'll get some praise? So you know that no one knows about that one story, but when you tell that one story, uh, because no one knows about that one story, you're going to just tell it a little bit different, and it's going to be a bit of a, a fish story, right? A fish tale, because you know it'll make you look better if you just add a detail here or take a detail out here. Or maybe someone's giving you some praise because they thought you did something that you didn't really do. And so um, instead of denying it and saying, no, actually that was someone else, you just say, hey, thanks, I appreciate it. Do you exaggerate to make yourself look better? If you do, you might find yourself more apt to uh, compete with other people than celebrate what God is doing in other people. Now, here's what Paul does. He celebrates. So if you go back to verse 17, he, he says who God is and what God has done. That's the primary, please understand, that is the primary celebration of every Christian. We get to celebrate who God is. He's holy. He's perfect. He's awesome. He's everything we would ever want God to be. That's God. We celebrate who he is and we celebrate what he's done. He died on the cross for us. And so in verse 17, he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory or who glory belongs to and the spirit of wisdom. So did you guys see it? Father, son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity. He said, this is who God is. And then he goes on in verse 20 and he talks about what he has done, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. This is what we celebrate. Don't ever forget what we have to celebrate. There's a million things you can complain about, but you get to choose daily to celebrate because you don't have to compete for anything. Like I said, in the kingdom of God, we all win. We all win. This is, this is good news. Jesus says, in the kingdom of God, the first will be last. The last will be first. So if you're a loser <laughs> on earth, 
but your faith is in Jesus, that's really awesome. Because the last will be first. You get more than you ever could have imagined. Now, Paul prays two things. He prays two things. Number one, he he prays for us that we would learn more about God, that we would learn more about Jesus. Where do we see this? We see this in a few different words. He says he wants us to have the spirit of wisdom. So that's the Holy Spirit there and revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And so four ways he says, I, just, I want you to know more. I want you to know more about Jesus. This is my prayer so often for the church. And I hope I say this on a regular basis. My prayer is that God would reveal himself to you. To, to have revelation is to have something that's already there, but now you finally see it. And all of humanity needs revelation that only comes from God. I'm not talking about new revelation. Uh, I'm not talking about Joseph Smith and Mormonism kind of revelation. I'm talking about the gospel and a sinner colliding and someone who's spiritually dead now has the spiritual light bulb that is the Holy Spirit saying, did you see what Jesus has done on the cross? And yeah, you heard it, you heard it, you heard it, but now you get it. Man. I can't tell you how many times I, and maybe even you, have talked to people about God. We've talked about the Bible. We, we, we're like, eh, I don't know if I explained that very well, but that I did explain pretty well. And it just didn't click with people. We're like, why is it not clicking? Why is it not clicking? Why is it not clicking? I want my husband. I want, him to, I want this to click for him. I want my kids. I want it to click. And it doesn't click. They need revelation. They need a spirit of wisdom. They need a knowledge that can only come from God and through God. You can't take a holy, perfect word of God and receive it in a sinful body unless it's God who not only gives you the word, but gives you the ability to understand the word. No matter how long you've been a Christian, there's always something more to learn. I've only followed Jesus for 10 years, but along the way, I've devoted myself to his word in in various ways, and I've got a few seminary degrees along the way, and I, I learn more and more and more about God all the time. All the time. I don't feel insecure, but I feel overwhelmed. The more I know, the, realize, the, the more I realize there's just so much I don't know. And the deeper I go in Christ, the more that, that I just am in awe of how deep there is to go. And I realize how shallow I had been before, and I thought I was deep. And I'm just learning more and more and more about him. Now picture, Paul's talking to, again, the Ephesians. You want to know who taught? Just in this general time frame, the church in Ephesus. Here's what we know biblically, who was there teaching these Christians. We know Paul was there more than he was anywhere else. We know uh, John was there. A good chunk of the Apostle John's ministry was in Ephesus. We know Luke was there. Now, If Andy on a screen or me in front of you stand here and say, well, I'm going to try to take the Bible and and teach you what it says, and I hope that I'm right, and you're like, I hope that you're right too. Like, there's just a little insecurity there, right? But when the guy who wrote it (laughs) comes and says, hey, my name's John. When I write stuff, people know it's from God. 
when I say stuff, people know it's from God. And if you go to 2 Peter 3.16, you'll see Peter, he talks about Paul, right? This is written, 2 Peter was around the same time this letter was written from Paul. And he says, yeah, I know Paul talks about some, some complicated things, but in all of his letters, and some people don't understand, but as in other scriptures, he's saying, we recognize, even as this stuff was being written, that this is from God. It wasn't like 800 years later, they're like, you know, that was some really good stuff. That was great literature they had back then in the first century. Let's call it the Bible. No, they knew these people had encounters with the risen Jesus. They knew God in ways that we didn't know, and they communicated God's truth. If one of these guys shows up in front of you, you listen. Their commentary is really good. And some of us, I just want to encourage, um, because we've, we've learned a few verses and we've coasted, and we have the same general spiritual conversations with people and we don't really grow in our knowledge of Jesus and we wonder why we're stagnant. You can go deeper. Don't stay stagnant. Dig into God's word. Your spiritual life will rise and fall based on your love for his word. If you don't love it and you're not devoted to it, then we can paint the picture of what is probably going on inside. And it's not, it's not great because people who love the Lord love his word. Then he prays something else. So he prays that they would learn more about God, but then he prays that they would experience God on a deeper level. You see, he says three different things here. He says, I want you to have wisdom. I want you to have knowledge. I want you to have revelation. I want your hearts to be enlightened so that, here's the big what, there's what, 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 so that you would know the hope to which he has called you in. So this is, this is the past salvation that you have placed your faith in Jesus. And then he says, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So this is future. So you got past, you got future. And then what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? That is the, the, the present, um, power of God in your life. And so he says three things. I want you to experience. I want you to know the hope. I want you to know about this glorious inheritance. And I want you to experience. I want you to know the measurable greatness of his power, his power. Romans one says that the gospel is the power of God and the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. There is power in the gospel. If you are a Christian and you don't experience the power of God, now, in some cases, you just don't realize it's power. Like the fact that you're saved, if your faith right, is in Jesus, that's powerful. You might not be like, oh, that is powerful. But you should experience power in God. If his Holy Spirit, who, who is God, and it lives in you, shouldn't there be some power that comes with that? Not a power that you get to just do whatever you want with, but the power that God wills in your life. Paul wants you to not just know about these things, but to experience it. Some of us, we have, we have watered or dumbed Christianity down to simply what we know about God, not what we experience in God. And so some of us don't experience much in God because we stop with knowledge. And you've got to understand the things that God tells you about himself are not just to be known, they're often to be experienced. And some things we'll experience in the future, some things you experience in the past, but there are things today for you to experience. That's the beauty 
You can't look and read uh, the Bible. You can't say, well, I'm just going to learn about God. If you say, I'm going to learn about God without having a desire to experience these things, then it will just be hollow to you. And that's not, that's not what God had in mind. You see, the experience, a lot of it comes from the fact that um, we're in his presence, that he lives in us. It'd be one thing if we were talking about God from a distance. But the people in this room and people listening online that, that know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we have God in us. This should change our expectations for what we experience in life. Because if you are in proximity close to God, things happen. Read through the Old Testament and see what happens when people have encounters with God. They fall on their face. They say, woe is me. They say, I am dead. They can't look at him. Like, there is power in his presence. And when his presence is in you, you're going to experience life in a different way. Now, I'll say this. I have a lot of charismatic friends, and we have great conversations. And I agree with them on some things. Here's one thing that I would differ from a lot of my cares, not all of them, a lot of my charismatic friends. For those of you who maybe grew up in a Pentecostal church, this may or may not be true for you. It's not one size fits all. But here, here's a, a primary difference between an ordinary old Baptist and maybe one of my charismatic friends is, is some, uh, some will say, well, your experience with God um, then teaches you what you know about God. So experience dictates knowledge. An old Baptist like myself would say knowledge dictates experience. Well, what I mean is you got to be careful when we talk about experiencing these things in Christ because what we know about God dictates what we experience. The Bible tells us who God is and what we can experience in him. And so if I experience something outside of that, I'm not going to be rewriting the Bible saying, well, this was my personal experience. Let me tell you all about God. That's a dangerous game to play. And what happens is, instead of experience building on knowledge, your experience builds on experience, builds on experience. And before you know it, you have Christian movements or maybe even cults that believe all kinds of weird theology. And you say, how did you get that? And it's because they had an experience that was built on an experience that was built on an experience that somewhere down the line came from a little bit of truth in the Bible. You can come up with all kinds of weird stuff about God if you're just going to experience, because we're humans, we experience weird things all the time, don't we? Right? Just because you have a weird dream doesn't mean that's going to automatically mean that's what God is. But what we know about God through his word dictates what we experience. And the good news is there's a ton for us to experience. There's plenty to go around. Christians don't compete with each other because... There's plenty in Christ to go around. Let me, let me just share it with you. How many of you guys, you love the holidays? The fact that like it's getting to be one of you. You know what? I love, Jade, that you love the holidays because you love to bake. And that means that we all get more snacks at cross training. That is good news. Some of us, we love the holidays because we think about families and getting together. I love the holidays just like anyone else loves the holidays. When I was a kid, I got two older brothers and I got two younger sisters. And we lived in a smaller house and we, we competed all the time, especially me and my brothers. We fought and, and we pushed each other and we stole each other's toys and, and games and books and everything. We just all year long, we fought, 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 fought. All the time we were competing to see who was better. And I was the littlest so it didn't work out well for me most of the time. 
But one thing I loved about Christmas was on Christmas Eve, we all kind of banded together. We stopped competing because we knew in the morning there was going to be a bunch of presents. And that for one person to get a present didn't mean that someone else didn't get a present, but that we were all going to get presents. And so we would, we would band together and we would strategize about who's going to stay up on Christmas Eve to see if Santa Claus came in. And we would all have a little game plan. And like we just all of a sudden were on the same team. And the next morning when we got our presents, we would open them and each person would get their thing. And like we could be happy for each other because I got what I wanted and they got what they wanted and we all got something. That's kind of like the kingdom of God. That there's plenty of the riches of Christ to go around for everyone. And when you're a Christian, you stop competing because you realize there's just as much gift as there is people. And so we can be happy and celebrate when God's working in someone else's life because it doesn't necessarily mean he's not working in our lives. We all get Jesus. That is really, really good news. Last but not least, verses 21 through 23. Paul takes it up a notch. He says, That far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. I love that. He's just like, uh, every, every name in the whole world, every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. So this is talking about Jesus and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness. Now, the fullness meaning, or we are full of him who fills all all in all. Last but not least, appreciated people exchange bitterness for thankfulness. Bitterness for thankfulness. It's easy for some of us to naturally become bitter, isn't it? For some of us, bitterness, when we're unappreciated, it's kind of it's like deep ruts in our soul. It's just easy to fall in, like a car that's out of alignment. It's just so easily, some person just, just shows us a little lack of appreciation, and we just find ourselves veering in there and just, yeah, just, man, ticked off. And we say, well, why, why do they get to be healthy when I'm sick? And why do they get to be in a relationship when I'm single? And why do they get to have kids when I couldn't have kids? And why do they get that job? And why do they get into that school? And why did they get? And why did they get? And we just grow bitter. We just grow bitter. Here's the key perspective. Here's what Paul tells us. He says, you want, you want a perspective, just a mind-blowing, like, forget your drama for a second kind of perspective? He says, Jesus is far above so far above, some of us, we have drama in our lives that is, is so overwhelming because it's what we see, right? And the things that are right in front of our face tend to overwhelm us the most. And he's saying, you need to understand, God is, he's far above. Jesus is far above. He is over everything. So I know the drama in your life is right up in your face. And he said, she said, and it hurts and the pain is real. But like, he is above all of it. He's above all of it. And he says, all, all rule... So you, you, you can fight with the government. You can not like who's in the White House or who's ruling around the world. He's above all rule and all authority and all power and dominion. We'll talk more about those in Ephesians chapter 6. And above every name that is named. You see, some of us, we live in bitterness because we care more about our name than his name. And when our name gets trashed a little bit, when our name doesn't get exalted like we want it, when, when it's not 
us that's on the throne, we grow bitter. But he says, every name that is named. So the person who you're fighting with tonight, the person who doesn't appreciate you, the person that comes to mind when I'm giving you these examples tonight, his name is above every name. So they might, you might have given some people in your life room to speak into your life. And maybe you shouldn't have given them authority to speak into your life. But the pain is real. He's saying, Jesus is above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but the age to come. He's talking about the millennial reign. And he puts all things, notice it's all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's saying, I don't know how else to say it to y'all. Jesus is huge. He's awesome. He's superior. He's king. He is on the throne. Perspective. Two things Paul focuses on. The fact that Jesus is supreme and he reigns. And number two, that the church reflects him. And it's a really big deal to be part of his church. I'm not talking cross point. I'm talking the kingdom of God church. Some of us, um, we live bitter because we dismiss number one and we despise number two. We dismiss the fact that Jesus is above all things and we let people in our lives become more authoritative than they should be and speak into our lives more than we should be. And we need to focus on the fact that Jesus is above every name. And then some of us, we grow bitter because we, we um, despise the church. It's really popular and really cool when you become a Christian to read a couple books about how the church is supposed to be this organic, beautiful thing. And then the the machine is organized religion. And so whatever church in your town has a building and plays some contemporary praise songs, well, they're just part of the machine. And so we're just going to hate them. And if we were really holy, we would have just a bunch of house churches where we were on mission and everything was just like they did 2,000 years ago. And we have this false sense of holiness and we have this church critic position that opens up in our heart where we feel like we can condemn God's church because it's not the way that we would have done it 2,000 years ago. And so people start to despise the church of God. And Paul's saying, the church is beautiful. Yeah, we're broken in our sin, but we are healed in Christ. It doesn't matter if you're part of a, a church that's got a fancy name or a fancy building or doesn't have any name or any building. It's the church. And that means a lot. It's a big deal. Remember, Remember in Acts chapter 9, um, there's a promise spoken over Paul's life when, when he was converted. Uh, his name, he, 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 he had a name that was a, that was a big deal, right? He, he was a Pharisee. He was a religious elite. He, he was zealous for God. He knew all the rules. He studied under Gamaliel, one of the best rabbis there was. He had all of these things going for him. And, and when, when Jesus blinded Saul, and then he went and talked to Ananias. Remember what he told Ananias about Saul's future? He said that he's going to have to suffer. Acts 9, 16. He's going to have to suffer many things. He's going to find out he's going to suffer many things for my name. When you realize Jesus is the name above all names, You realize even when your name gets thrashed and trashed, instead of being bitter, you grow a thankful heart because you realize he's king. Let me um let me end here with, with this. this. This is a bit of a silly illustration. This is probably a Wednesday night illustration, not a Sunday morning one. 
Um, a few years ago when Tara and I planted the church in Nebraska, um, we had this ministry couple. They've been in ministry for like 50 years, and they were part of the overall kind of church governing board um, for the two-state convention that we were in in our denomination that was helping to fund us. And so it was kind of a big deal to have them over one, one day for dinner. It was great to have them into our house. And a day or two before, Tara tried to play a prank on me. Now, I know you see her sitting over here sometimes, and she looks so innocent and sweet and kind, and she is those things. But when you're married, the further you go into marriage, you realize um, kind of poking at each other and playing pranks, that's sometimes the most enjoyable part of marriage, right? And so we, we were in that world, and um, we had a bunch of stuff in our bathroom wall. We had just bought the house a few months earlier, and we had, we had like a bunch of those little letters that people can buy and they can write different things like live, laugh, love, and that kind of stuff. We had some black letters and someone had put a few sentences that were like, nah, that ain't staying. Well, she wanted to see if I would notice. So she, she took a bunch of them off. She took all of them off, but then she spelled like some words like burp, fart, poop, like right on the wall there. And she wanted to see if I would see this and she was going to laugh and she thought this was funny or whatever. Forgive us. We, we have matured over the years. <laughs> So this guy and his wife come over. They go into the bathroom. Yeah, I mean, like, you can't not see it. Afterwards, you should have seen the look on Tara's face when I said, did you take down those words? And she's like, oh, no. Like, she realized she left them up there. They didn't say a word about it. Both the husband and wife used the bathroom. And you know, when they pulled away from our house... They looked at each other before the car started. Like, did you see what they had written on the wall? <laughs> we never talked. I've seen them, that couple, several times since then. We've never talked about it. But I know that they know. Because there's no way they couldn't know. Here, here's what I'm saying. Perception, to some people, perception is reality. But you need to know there's always things going on behind the scenes. And right now, if you find yourself bitter towards people, you need to know some of the people in your life that you're bitter towards, they're broken and they're hurting and they've got reasons for the way that they've treated you. And it might not justify it, but it might give you perspective that helps you to understand they're just as broken as you. And if you don't see God and you don't sense God ruling over your life and and your faith is in Jesus and you say, God, where are you? You say you're above all things, but I need to see you in front of me right here and now and I'm not seeing it. You need to know just because you don't see it doesn't mean he's not there. He's still reigning. He's still on the throne. And it's never going to change. Texas shooting, he's still on the throne. South Carolina shooting, he's still on the throne. All the other tragedies around the world, he's still on the throne. So let me challenge you as we leave here. Number one, what situation in your life do you need this kind of perspective that Jesus is on the throne to help open your mind to your immediate drama? And number two, this is just practical. If you know you're appreciated by God when you're in Christ, that he's glad that you're in Christ, who in your life do you need to thank tonight? Who in your life have you withheld thankfulness from because they, they, they didn't earn it enough or they didn't show you enough appreciation. Your spouse, 
your boss, your coworkers. It's not dependent on who they are or what they've done. Show them some love. Because if you're whole in Christ, then you can love, you can bless regardless of how people receive it. Let me pray for you.